I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you so much. My name is David Herman. Uh, I was slightly disconcerted earlier to see a book by a different David Herman propped up there earlier, which has been very discreetly and politely removed. Uh, but I'll, I'll bear in mind the title. It sounded a very good title. Um, this uh, turnout is fantastic, and it's a wonderful tribute to three remarkable people. First of all, obviously, to Vasily Grossman, one of the great writers of the 20th century, and also to Robert and Elizabeth Chandler, who have together introduced the English-speaking world to a number of astonishing books by Grossman, including the novels Life and Fate and Everything Flows and a fantastic book of short stories and essays, The Road. And I always think one of the great tests of a translator is how they single-handedly or double-handedly introduce an audience to a writer who people haven't really come across and suddenly realise is just one of the greatest writers of the modern period. And now they have translated another extraordinary novel by Grossman, Stalingrad, which has already been compared by reviewers here to War and Peace. And we're going to talk about Stalingrad and why it might be one of the great novels of the past 70 years and its fascinating relationship to life and fate, which is obviously more familiar to, to many, and about Grossman. And we're going to start with a reading. Robert is going to read... Uh, from a chapter about where we get introduced properly to the Eastern Front and to Novikov, one of the central characters in the book. So um, one of the things I always find remarkable about Grossman is just how many sort of unexpected perceptions there constantly are all through the book. And um, you know, thoughts, observations I just haven't encountered before. And... Um, the, we first really get to see Colonel Novikov. He's at the extreme west frontier as the war begins. So we glimpse the, it's him primarily. It's through his eyes that we glimpse the very, very beginning of the war. And um, it is absolutely midsummer, on the morning of the 22nd of June. It's been a very beautiful night. He's been, um, at the headquarters of some regiment 
um, which was headquartered in a sort of what had been a Polish manor house, very beautiful garden, moonlit night. Um, he goes to bed and um, he wakes up with a precise awareness that something terrible had happened, but with no idea what this might be. He saw tiny crumbs of alabaster on the parquet floor and glimmers of orange on the crystal pendants of the chandelier. He saw black scraps of smoke against a dirty red sky. He heard a woman wail. He heard the cries of crows and jackdaws. He heard a crash that shook the walls and at the same time a faint whining sound in the sky. And though this whining was quiet and even melodic, it was this that made Norvikov shudder in horror as he jumped out of bed. So um, he rushes towards the door and then suddenly stops himself. This is very, very characteristic of this extremely controlled man. Unexpectedly, he finds himself saying, steady now. And he walked back to his bed to get dressed. He forced himself to do up all the buttons on his tunic. He adjusted his belt, straightened his holster, and walked downstairs at a measured pace. Later, in newspapers and journals, he often came across the phrase, surprise attack. How, he wondered, could anyone who had not experienced the war's first minutes ever understand what these words really meant. Throughout the novel, there's an extraordinary way in which Grossman is able to sort of bring together details of minute, lived experience with a sense of the historical significance of, of what's happening. Novikov does this himself. So he's with a... He's actually in a... Um, at the headquarters, the, the regiment... He's at the headquarters of is um, a fighter a fighter regiment. So the the pilots are all rushing off to the airstrip, and um, he's rushing after them. And then he stops in the middle of the garden, where he'd been walking about you know, the evening before. There was a silence during which it seemed that everything was unchanged. The earth, the grass, the benches the wicker table under the trees, a card chessboard, dominoes still lying scattered about. In that silence, with a wall of foliage shielding him from the flames and smoke, Novikov felt a lacerating sense of historical change that was almost more than he could bear. It was a sense of hurtling movement, similar perhaps to what someone might experience if they could glimpse if they could sense on their skin and with every cell of their being the earth's terrible hurtling through the infinity of the universe. This change was irrevocable, and although only a millimetre lay between Norvikov's present life and the shore of his previous life, there was no force that could cancel out this gap. The gap was growing, widening, it could already be measured in metres, in, kilo in kilometres. The life 
and time that Novikov still sensed as his own were already being transformed into the past, into history, into something about which people would soon be saying, yes, that's how people lived and thought before the war. And a nebulous future was swiftly becoming his present. At that instant he remembered Jania, and it seemed to him that his thoughts about her would accompany him throughout this new life. Thank you very much, Robert. Let me ask you to, to begin with, why have you only translated this novel now, something like 30 years, more than 30 years, after Life and Fate? Firstly, um, everything about Grossman always seems to take an extraordinarily long time. Secondly, I'd read so many people say that the novel was vastly unfair to life and fate, that um, I didn't bother to read it for a very long time. And I focused on the, the later work, um, on Everything Flows and the short stories. And it was the, um, the historian Jochen Helbeck, and one of the best historians of 20th century Russia, who um, finally shook me out of this and persuaded me to read it. Even the works of Grossman that I have read, I nearly always underestimate them first time, first time round. But um, um, in the case of life, in the case of Stalingrad, there are quite a lot of other reasons as well. So there's Cold War thinking that we tended to assume that um, anything that was first, this was first published while Stalin was still alive. So it was unimaginable that anything good could have been published then. So, um, I mean, for instance, Harry Willett, someone I enormously respect, when he first um, did a reader's report on life and fate for Harville, which was a favourable reader's report, and he said that he probably did, this was so different from anything he'd read of Grossman before, that, um, you know, at first he thought this was actually by a different writer and it was just, you know, some sort of pseudonym or some mistake or something. And then there's the fact that um, Stalingrad was published first in a very censored edition in 1952, in a slightly, slightly less censored edition in 1954. Grossman's constantly pushing to try and get you know, to try and reinsert bits that have been edited out. And then in 1956, so already the kind of beginning of the thaw, he's able to get quite a lot more bits back into the book. Um, but nevertheless, all the pub every published edition to this date is um, in Russian and in other languages. They're all inadequate because um, there are a huge number of, I mean, several hundred passages that we've included here which are from Grossman's typescripts. He was not able to get them into any published edition. So a lot of the bits that are most interesting, most unusual, most vivid, most ironic, most comic, um, got edited out. Everything, um, I mean, working on this was a real education in the nature of Soviet editorial and censorship practices. Because, um, you know, it wasn't, it's not, in a way, it wasn't nearly so, so much a political matter as one might imagine. It was 
much more a matter of tone and dignity. Um, Soviet um, Soviet social, socialist realism was defined by um, Andrei Sinyatsky as a kind of neoclassicism. You know, you're not allowed anything undignified. So the published editions, you know, the, the insects all get edited out. The, the lice and the fleas get edited out. Or, you know, and very, in a very... You know, obviously the arguments were extraordinarily detailed. So there's one passage where um, in the typescript... This is a description of a particularly slovenly soldier. Um, during inspections, there were always more lice on hi- found on him than on any other soldier. So that's the typescript. I think I, I may get the details slightly wrong, but I think in 1952 that passage just disappeared completely. And then in 1956, Grosten was able to publish something like he was the only soldier on whom lice were found. <laughs> So, you know, there's very, very precise details of how many lice you're allowed. Um, a bit, sort of just a bit too strange. Um, I mean, from what I've just read, that bit about feel it, feeling on his skin and with every cell of his body, the hurtling of the earth through the universe, that's just a little bit too weird. It's just a bit too sort of far from straightforward realism. So that, that was edited out. So how many actual extant typescripts, published versions are you, were you working from? Um, well, to begin with, I thought the idea of doing this was a complete non-starter. Again, Jochen Helbeck was saying we must do this. And um, what I'd read was that there were sort of 12, 12 complete versions of the novel, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to... You know, I need another 100 years of more life to compare that number of different editions. And um, so I just thought I'd work, you know, that I imagined I would just be doing the published edition. Then I got interested comparing the different published editions and I began to get a sense of sort of what, you know, what kind of things were so offensive that they got edited out and what kind of things were so important to Grossman that he wanted to reinsert them. And then um, one of my, um, my young colleague in Moscow, um, Yuri Bityunan, who we credit as a co-editor of this, he actually did give me away, you know, he orientated me through these typescripts. And actually, you know, there aren't, it's not a matter of there being 12 complete versions of the novel. Um, Some of these versions are just, you know, versions of particular sections. But basically, and this was just enormously helpful to, because it would take me so long to have done this on my own, um, what Yuri basically told me was that the, the first, he calls them, in Russian they call them sort of first variant, second variant, and so on. So the first variant was, um, the first version, was a more or less illegible manuscript. Um, the second version has <laughs> unaccountably disappeared. These kind of things happen. No one knows what's happened to it, but it's sort of listed as existing. Um, the third version is a typescript, um, and it's clearly, um, if you do compare it with the, if you do manage to read the difficult-to-read manuscript, it's pretty close to the manuscript. And um, that's the, really the most important version from, um, for us. Um, it's, a, it's relatively early, and it's clearly much, much bolder than any subsequent typescript.
And so the subsequent typescripts, by and large, they're sort of gradual degrees of compromise with his editor's demands. By and large, but that doesn't mean they're to be dismissed. You know, sometimes um, new chapters, new characters get introduced relatively late, and perhaps they get introduced in the fourth version or the fifth version. So, so to be absolutely clear, the, the period we're talking about, he completes the original version in about 49. Yes. So we're talking about the last years of Stalin and then the years after Stalin. Well, death. what we're talking about is still 1949 to 52, really, well, before the first publication, yes. Hmm. A tricky time for a Jewish Soviet writer. Indeed, and it is um, trickier, clearly, than people realise, because very, very smart people like Fadyev, the boss of the Writers' Union, and um, Tvarovsky, then editor of Norway Mir, they were you know, backing this book and agreeing to publish it in um, summer 1952. So for all their extremely smart sense of the way things were politically, they clearly hugely underestimated how um, the anti-Jewish, you know, what was almost certainly going to be a major anti-Jewish purge, and they clearly underestimated how swiftly that was developing. And one of the delights of the book, to, to, to my way of thinking, is how curiously old-fashioned a lot of the writing is. And there's a sort of extraordinary page which suddenly appears in the middle of the book where he starts talking about realism and modernism and kinds of writing. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this is um, clearly important to Grossman. Um, I remember when um, my late friend, the um, art historian Igor Golemstock, who first gave me a copy of Life and Fate and encouraged that I should translate it. And I was initially, um, yet again, reluctant to take this on. My first reaction was I didn't read books that long in Russian, <laughs> let alone translate them. And um, I was, you know, at the time, I, I sort of saw myself as being more interested in poetry, being more interested in, if I was interested in prose, it'd be more modernist prose. And I was sort of, um, before I'd really got started, I was sort of put off by what seemed like the old-fashionedness of it. And then um, Ego sort of, you know, finally persuaded me to actually start reading rather than just sort of thinking I knew what it would be like. And um, once I did start reading, actually, initially what I read was his transcripts that he did for the, of programmes for the BBC Russian service. I did sort of quickly realise that um, whatever I, you know, whatever I thought my tastes might be, that actually, you know, there was something extraordinarily vivid and powerful here, even if it, um, you know, was more old-fashioned than what I thought I um, was more interested in. So, um, Grossman does, um, he talks about similar things in his um, Armenian sketchbook. He sometimes, he writes about Mandelstam a bit, um, because Mandelstam hadn't been to Armenia too. And um, Grossman does, um, he clearly does recognise Mandelstam's greatness, but nevertheless he's sort of tending to see him as, and a lot of the poets who are his, con his contemporaries as sort of jewellers rather than bakers of bread, you know, that people need um, for their daily sustenance. There's this passage about simplicity, 
it isn't really quite about old-fashionedness versus modernism. It is more about simplicity versus complexity. But it's clearly um, a passage of huge importance to Grossman because um, what he writes here, he actually, um, some of it is repeated almost verbatim in a passage in the Armenian sketchbook. In the Armenian sketchbook, these words about simplicity are applied to Armenian churches, which are very simple and very perfect. I mean, you know, round arches, domes, not you know, none of the com complexities of Gothic. So, you know, this was written in the late 40s. The Armenian sketchbook is nearly 15 years later, so it's a kind of something, thoughts that remained important to Grossman for a long time. Like a lot of Grossman, um, Grossman has a way of sort of seeming quite ordinary as you first read it. He goes about things quite slowly sometimes. He, if he's arguing, if he's telling a story, if he's making an intellectual argument, he tends to do it one step at a time. Sometimes it can seem, it can seem sort of plodding and and then suddenly, after a sort of page or two, you, I find I've reached some, and I thought, God, you know, this is a much more unusual thought than I than I'd realised. But he sort of develops it quite slowly, so I don't quite notice it at first. So when people read obscure novels, when they listen to over complex music, or look at a frighteningly unintelligible painting, they feel anxious and unhappy. The thoughts and feelings of the novel's characters, the sounds of the symphony, the colours of the painting, everything seems peculiar and difficult, as if from some other world. Almost ashamed of being natural and straightforward, people read, look and listen without joy, without any real emotion. Contrived art is a barrier placed between man and the world, impenetrable and oppressive like a cast-iron grill. But there are also books that make a reader exclaim joyfully, Yes, that's just what I feel. I've gone through that too. And that's what I thought myself. Art of this kind does not separate people from the world. Art like this connects people to life, to other people, and to the world as a whole. It does not scrutinise life through strangely tinted spectacles. As they read this kind of book, people feel that they are being infused with life, that the vastness and complexity of human existence is entering into their blood, into the way they think and breathe. And I actually feel this is getting quite close to D.H. Lawrence here. But this simplicity, this supreme simplicity of clear daylight, is born from the complexity of light of different wavelengths. So it isn't actually quite as simple as one first thinks. In this clear, calm and deep simplicity lies the truth of genuine art. Such art is like the water of a spring. If you look down, you can see to the bottom of a deep pool. You can see green weeds and pebbles. Yet the pool is also a mirror. In it, you can see the entire world where you live, labour and struggle. Art combines the transparency of glass and the power of a perfect astronomical mirror.
All this applies not only to art, it is equally true of science and politics and the strategy of a people's war, a war for life and freedom, is no different. Very unexpected ending to the chapter. <laughs> and it's worth saying that this is not a million years away from Zhdanov laying down the law about what is art, what is literature, what is music, and therefore to sort of opine on these matters in the late 1940s is not a sort of trivial matter at all. Indeed, yes. And it's also worth saying, perhaps, you know, what he's doing in Armenia in uh, 1961, 62. Yeah, yeah. Uh, would you like to just say a few words about what, why he's in Armenia? <clears throat> Which may sound a bit niche and recherche, I, I readily admit, but actually there, there, is a, there is a purpose to this. Well, I'm not sure I, I really know the answer confidently. Um, after... Um, after the arrest of the manuscript of the Life and Fate, um, I mean, obviously that was a devastating blow to Grossman. His personal life was very complex, um, a wife and a mistress. And um, I think he was probably just glad of the opportunity to sort of get away from, get away from everything. And um, the Caucasus has always been the sort of escape place for for Russian writers. Um, the kind of more romantic Russian writers all go to Georgia, and the more classical ones go to Armenia. <laughs> and um, so I think he was just banned. I mean, he what he did there, the um, overt reason for his being there was um, to be working, you know, polishing, well, working on the so-called translation of an Armenian war, not by kind of well-known Armenian writer at the time, um, a kind of literal version of this. It was the way Soviet, the Soviet literary world often went about things. There'd been a sort of a literal translation, hyper-literal translation of this novel had been done, and Grossman was reworking it into um, something a bit more literate. Um, so that was the overt reason for his being there. So the novel that's been arrested, so to speak, is life and fate. And now we come to the question, what is the relationship between life and fate, which includes many of the same characters as Stalingrad, and Stalingrad? The relationship clearly sort of changed as Grossman um, went along with life and fate. Um, so to begin with, I don't think there was any doubt at all. It was just two halves of a, of a single novel. But... Um, you know, the characters are all exactly the same, I mean, apart from the ones who died in Stalingrad. Um, there are some new characters in Life and Faith, but not, not so very many. And, the, you know, the plot, um, Life and Faith begins exactly where um, Stalingrad ends. Um, but things changed in the 50s, in the first... First of all, there were a huge number of people returning from the camps in the mid-50s, and Grossman spent a lot of time talking to them, so he learned a lot more and clearly wanted to include all of that. He was clearly felt a, a deep sense of shame over compromises he'd made in his life and was you know, increasingly determined not to carry on making any more compromises. 
there's a greater distance from the actual experience of the war. So, um, Stalingrad, there are quite a lot of passages in Stalingrad that are almost verbatim from his wartime notebooks. Um, the whole description of it's given to the Commissar Kremov, um, the visit to Tol the Tolstoy estate, Yasna Palyana. Um, you know, in the novel that is given to Kremov, but the page where Grossman relates his own experience of visiting Tolstoy's estate in um, late 1941, and um, that's in the wartime notebooks, you know, almost verbatim. Um, so there's a lot in Stalingrad, and that's what gives, um, gives Stalingrad its extraordinary vividness. It's a um, huge range of little vignettes of individual experience, scraps of dialogue. Grossman had this fantastic memory, and um, so there's a... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I think there's a kind of richer variety of human experience in the earlier novel. Um, whereas Life and Fate is, is written that much later, it's more a kind of considered a considered more, philo more philosophical statement. So um, it's more of a political statement, um, uh, the theme of the similarities between Nazism and Stalinism, um, or the two being mirror images of each other. Um, you know, that's hinted at a little in the earlier novel, but it's um, certainly not an overt central theme. And also... Um, Life and Fate is more of a kind of considered ethical statement. You know, there's um, a lot of passages about um, well, people making choices in almost impossible situations, but, you know, that one can make moral choices even, you know, if it's going to cost one one's life um, in a German camp, in a Soviet camp or anywhere. I mean, life and fate clearly is valued, um, especially perhaps the chapter where um, Ikonikov's sort of essay about senseless human kindness, that is greatly valued by some moral philosophers. And, um, but again, you know, then we end up with um, blurring things again, because um, 
it's in life and fate, but actually it was originally going to be in Stalingrad, and it clearly was unacceptable to Grossman's editors. So it's one of the passages that got shunted out of Stalingrad into life and fate. You know, to some to some extent, um, the differences between the two novels are just you know the bits that he wasn't able to get into the first novel that he could only publish in the second novel. And two of the greatest characters in both novels are Viktor Strom, the physicist, and his mother, Anna Semyonovna. We have this unfortunate tendency that I mispronounce almost everything in Russian. Robert pretends I've not said anything and just very calmly pronounces it properly and we, we move on. Um, and the mother writes this letter to her son, Viktor, which is one of the most extraordinary documents in Soviet literature, 20th century literature. And the letter appears in Stalingrad and is sort of passed around. Would you like to say a little more about that? Well, I mean, I think it's um, one of the extraordinary... I mean, Grossman clearly had a gift for um, turning compromises that were forced on him or turning all kinds of difficulties to his own advantage. Um, he clearly understood um, because... The Black Book, um, the book that he co-edited with Ehrenberg about the Shoah, a kind of you know, collection of documentary accounts of the Shoah on Soviet and Polish soil. Um, they worked on this for several years, from around 1943, and then it eventually got vetoed as um, the taboo on writing about the Shoah became stronger and stronger in the post-war years. So Grossman clearly understood that he could not, there were things he could not say in this book. So um, instead of actually getting the text of Anna Semyonovna's letter from the Berdichev ghetto, um, we get these constant mentions of the letter in sometimes quite bizarre and ironic Ways it gets smuggled, you know, it gets smuggled across the front line. Um, it gets um, this sort of filthy, filthy passage, uh, filthy package gets handed to. Um, maybe I should find this and quote it. So um, the letter gets handed to this young woman called Tamara. She responds, "Heavens, what filthy paper!" Anyone would think it's been lying in a cellar for the last two years, which, of course, isn't so far from the truth. And she promptly wraps it in a sheet of the thick pink paper people use to make decorations for Christmas trees. And then everyone keeps forgetting about the letter. Um, even Victor forgets about it. He gets given it. He gets handed it by Colonel Novikov, um, who interrupts a tete-a-tete with a woman Victor is having an affair with. And so he's kind of irritated by this interruption. He just drops it into his briefcase and forgets about it for 24 hours. And um, then 24 hours later at his doctor, he mistakes this package with this devastating letter in it. He mistakes it for a bar of chocolate that he's, you know, imagines he's put in his briefcase to give to the woman he's having an affair with. And then we get told Victor's reaction. We get told his feelings after reading the letter, he looks at himself in the mirror the next morning, expecting to see the sort of haggard face of someone 30 years older, and he's quite sort of surprised that he looks much the same as the previous day. 
So we get told Victor's um, reaction, but we don't get the text of this letter. It's like there's, it's like there's just something that cannot be spoken. And um, actually Victor can't, he can't speak about it to anyone. He doesn't speak about it to his family. He doesn't speak about it to his wife. He can barely speak about it to himself because Grossman tells us that every time he, re- he rereads it, it's as if he's re- it's as if he's reading it for the first time because you know what is in it is so terrible that he um, he just can't he can't quite take it in because it's sort of almost like it's so terrible that it might just destroy his life if he does take it in. So. Victor can't talk about it to other people. Victor can't talk about it to himself. Grossman can't talk about it. Grossman can't give us the text. So it's like this. It is like this sort of black hole at the centre of the novel. And um, then we, um, I mean, as far as we know, we can't. Um, you know, not, nothing's ever quite for sure, for certain. But there's no. It, it appears that um, Grossman never intended to have the text of the letter in this first novel. Um, you know, Ikonikov, Ikonikov's essay clearly was, you know, we've got an early version in the typescript of that. But um, it looks as if Grossman always intended, as if he kind of understood, and he'd have been stupid not to understand from the beginning that it was impossible to include that letter. So I think, it, you know, I guess he must have just sort of hoped that maybe one day he'd be able to include it in a... I don't know. Anyway, at some point in the 50s, he clearly realised he could. Well, he was determined to include it. And before we throw this open to the audience, uh, there's just one passage I'd particularly like to read, starting with the, the end of the chapter that you read earlier, Robert, when the war begins on the, on, on the Eastern Front and in Novikov's mind these fused into a single blaze. His country seemed to him like a single huge house and everything in this house was infinitely dear to him. Small whitewashed rooms in villages, rooms in towns and cities with colourful lampshades, quiet reading rooms, brightly lit halls, the red corners of army barracks. Everything he loved was in flames. The Russian earth was on fire. The Russian sky was cloaked in smoke. And this image of the house, Russia being like a single huge house, one of the things I most like about this book, that I love about this book, is people are constantly being driven from their homes, returning to a home somewhere else, maybe thousands of miles away. And there's one particular moment which Robert alluded to earlier, where Krimov, who's one of the other great central characters, is on the road to Tula, and he stops at Yasnaya Polyana, the home of Tolstoy. And the house was in the grip of feverish departure preparations. The paintings had been taken down from the walls. Tablecloths, dishes and books had all been packed. The hall was full of boxes ready to be transported east. This was not a house, but a museum, a sepulchre. But when he went inside the second time, Krimov felt that this was a Russian house like any other. The storm that had flung open every door in Russia that had driven people out of their warm homes and onto black autumn roads, sparing neither peaceful city apartments nor village huts nor hamlets deep in the forest, had treated Leo Tolstoy's home no less harshly. 
It too was preparing to leave in rain and snow, along with the entire country, the entire people. Yasnaya Polyana was a living, suffering Russian home, one of thousand upon thousand of such homes. With absolute clarity, Krimov saw in his mind bald hills and the old sick prince in War and Peace. The present merged with the past. Today's events were one with what Tolstoy described with such truth and power that it become the supreme reality of a war that ran its course 130 years ago. And this sense of an entire country, from Moscow to Kazan, just being tipped on its end and people just being driven thousands of miles to find safety, if they were lucky to find safety. And this is, to me, one of the core set of images in the whole book. And this reference to War and Peace, to Tolstoy, is absolutely no coincidence. And I just wondered if you'd like to say some more about that, Robert. Everyone in Russia was reading War and Peace at this time. It was being broadcast at great length on the radio. Ordinary people were reading it, generals were reading it, um, directives were being issued to commissars on how to make the book accessible to the ordinary soldier. Obviously, you know, the outcome of Napoleon's invasion was, you know, it went badly for Napoleon, so this was a kind of, you know, a hopeful precedent to be evoking. Several, I mean, generals, like General Chuikov, uh, who was in charge of the defense of Stalingrad. I mean, he, he went, he's said in a subsequent interview that he, you know, he judged his conduct by Tolstoy. It really does seem to be a, a template for everyone. And um, there's an extraordinary passage that <coughs> Grossman's daughter quotes from one of his letters to her that, you know, when Grossman is in Stalingrad and he's writing, you know, it's imp- it's impossible to, you know, it's impossible to read. One can't read anything here. Stop. Except War and Peace. And he actually read it twice during the war. So obviously, in the first place, the Soviet establishment wanted a Soviet Tolstoy. Grossman was, you know, clearly saw it as his, it was his duty and his wish to take on that role. He does have a go at Tolstoy a few times. I think it's Krimov at some point um, says that something like sort of it's all very well for Tolstoy. He was writing sort of decades after the event when only what was sort of wise and beautiful was being remembered, and you know that he Grossman or he Krimov, because it's through his voice, um, had sort of witnessed things that were far more awful than Tolstoy ever witnessed, and of course. Um, Tolstoy isn't actually the writer that Grossman loves above anyone. The writer that Grossman loves more than anyone is Chekhov. And um, it's Chekhov who gets the real to him of praise um, in, in Life and Fate, as being you know, the one writer who introduced every, you know, who wrote with respect and a love of every people from every class of society. Yes, I mean, we don't want to uh, oversimplify with regard to Grossman's admiration of Tolstoy. There's a great book to be written, and maybe I'll suggest it to the other David Herman sometime, about 
books people were reading in extraordinary moments in the Second World War. So you've got Grossman in Stalingrad reading War and Peace. You've got Czesław Milos in Warsaw as the bombs and bullets are flying around his head carrying T.S. Eliot's selected poems in his pocket. And, you know, there's a whole mini-genre there, perhaps. Anyway, let's throw this open. So fire away. Yes, sir. Quickie, in your introduction, you used the word several times, dilogy, which I had to look up. Couldn't really find a satisfactory meaning, uh, except in the Urban Dictionary as a sort of little trilogy. But what did you mean by dilogy, presumably describing Stalingrad, life and fate and, and everything flows? Um, no, um, some people prefer the word duology, um, that Stalingrad and a life and fate, just as people often talk of a trilogy as being three linked novels, a dilogy or a duology is two linked novels. Could you expand a bit on the, how much of a Soviet writer Grossman was? Because in the afterword, you make the point uh, to Stalingrad, I think you make the point that he venerated work, for instance. When I was reading it, I thought these, these passages were put in for the censors. But actually, and he also made the point, he wasn't a Solzhenitsyn, he wasn't a dissident. He was a, a creature, you know, a, a product of the Soviet system. And I just wonder how much else, it's quite easy from the description of the, the censorship and the different versions to see him as this dissident fighting against the system. When I get a sense, it was, it was more complicated than that. It was actually, he, he supported a number of elements of the system, perhaps, of the Soviet system. So it's benefits. So I wonder if you could say a bit more about that, about how much he was a Soviet writer uh, as much as a Russian writer. Um, I'll do my best. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question. Grossman... I mean, he, he was a workaholic. There were a few days in his life that he didn't write. Um, he certainly did value labour. And um, there are some passages, some of... I mean, w one of the most debatable sections in Stalingrad is um, the end of part two. There are several chapters set in a coal mine. And um, this was something that... Um, Grossman was added fairly late in the day under pressure from his editors. They wanted him to, they insisted that he should include more about the kind of war effort in the rear factories and mines. We do know for sure that this wasn't part of Grossman's original concept. Um, so it's quite easy to say, oh, this was forced on Grossman. Maybe it's not quite sincere. Um, I don't know. I mean, Grossman did work in a mine himself in the Donbass in his late 20s. Um, he does write in an Armenian <coughs> sketchbook with pride about having worked in that mine. I corresponded a bit with someone who has written books about coal mining in Yorkshire, and um, he thought that these chapters set in the coal mine were a more vivid description of mining than he'd ever read anywhere else. So, um, you know, I think there, are, there certainly are some ways in which Grossman's own beliefs did coincide with Soviet beliefs. Um, but there were... I mean, there are paradoxes that just are hard to square. I remember some young woman coming up to me at the end of one talk and sort of said, um, how could I... You know, how could she reconcile what I'd just been saying about Grossman seeing Stalinism and Hitlerism as 
mirror images. How, you know, how, how could that be reconciled with, you know, the she'd just been reading Grossman's essay, is one of the first published articles about Treblinka, and yeah, Grossman evidently took enormous pride in the fact that Red Army was, you know, marching west, and um, just. I mean, Treblinka no longer really existed as a camp, but the Red Army did go on to liberate Auschwitz. Um, Grossman did enjoy singing Soviet, you know, Soviet war, war songs to the end of his life. You know, at, at dinners, um, you know, they would drink and they would sing like, you know, like all his contemporaries. The, these were the songs that were a part of their lives. And um, so, yes, you know, even when he was writing these things, he, I mean, this just was the world he'd lived in. You know, there weren't other songs. What you don't seem to get from his extraordinary travels with the Red Army, uh, Stalingrad, Majdanek, Treblinka, and so on, Kursk, uh, is this agonizing situation you get in Isaac Babel's notebooks, where he's writing about the Russo-Polish War, where he's a Jew riding with the Cossacks who are viciously anti-Semitic. Everywhere he goes, he knows they're going to rape Jewish women, they're going to destroy Jewish villages, and yet he cannot tell them the truth about the fate that awaits him. And you don't get the same agonizing duality, that division in, in, in Grossman between the part of him who's with the Red Army and the part of him who's Jewish and whose mother has been massacred. He included a great many very painful things in the two novels, but there are there are some things in his wartime notebooks that never made it into the novels, and um, certainly the mass rapes carried out by the Red Army they are in his notebooks, and then they're not in the novels. So um, it'd be wrong to make out that he included absolutely everything. And yes, I think what you say about Barbell is true. I mean, Grossman's mother was, you know, one of the 30,000 Jews massacred at Berdichev. And so, you know, he, the Red Army, he clearly does, you know, his allegiances with the Red Army, you know, in spite of everything, really. A couple more questions, sir, yes. Um, we did a lot of work to establish the text to translate. I mean, I'm wondering if this is a definitive text, does it exist in Russian in this definitive form, or are we the privileged um, readers of a definitive version? I mean, I couldn't claim that it's a definitive text, because um, I can only say that it's a better text than anything previously published. No, no one, um, there are very few Russian scholars working on Grossman. And um, you know the ones that are. Uh, well, my colleague Yuri Bidunan is doing very good work, but you know he's just one person, and his his other colleague there's just such a vast amount to do, and they haven't yet done it. So this is a more complete text than um, anything that has been published in in any language so far. Um, obviously, it can never be. Definitive, because I had to make my judgments as to whether, whether Grossman, you know, whether something from the, that was in the typescript but not in published editions 
you know, was this likely to be because Grossman chose to omit it or because he wasn't able to include it. Being able to compare the three published editions gave me a pretty clear sense of what kind of things Grossman wanted to include when he could. Um, so the kind of criteria I used to make my judgments were, were firstly that I couldn't include anything that would, from the typescript that would lead to a major plot conflict. Um, secondly, that I wouldn't include anything from the typescript unless I could at least, you know, conceive of a clear reason why an editor might have objected to it. Um, I think that was really it. Those are the two main things. I have a kind of more practical question because I think I would like to know how um, you dealt, while translating, how you dealt with the sadness of it all because just reading, I'm reading Everything Flows right now, it's just so tragic and um, such terrible things that happened. And I just wonder how do you take, how do you practically, when you translate, how do you deal with it? Does it overwhelm you? Do you take a distance from it? I think probably like technical, practical tips for me so that I know how to do it myself. This makes me want to ask you what you're working on yourself. I think I'll give you an answer since you were holding up a copy of Everything Flows, I will answer in relation to that book. That the, One of the most painful chapters in all of Grossman, and I also think of, it's one of his greatest achievements, is um, the chapter about um, the, the terror famine in Ukraine in 1932-1933. I work very closely with my wife Elizabeth, I was worried she might find that chapter too disturbing. And um, I kept warning her, you know, this really is excruciating. Are you sure you want to do this? And she said, let's give it a try. And, and at the end of sort of one day, I would say, well, you know, okay, but, you know, tom tomorrow it'll be worse. <laughs> and... Um, and so we went on, and we did go through the whole chapter together. There is something about Grossman's writing that, um, I mean, a lot of writers, when they're writing about something very painful, it's as if something is hurting them, and they think that if they can sort of shove it at someone else, then it will sort of, you know, if they can hurt the reader, um, then it would be less painful for them, and they'll feel better. Um, there is absolutely none of that in Grossman, nothing of the kind. It's like he feels that there is a story, he knows there is a story that needs to be told, and he sees it as his duty to tell it. He's not wanting to, he's not doing it with the aim of hurting the reader. It's somehow he does seem an extraordinary, trustworthy guide through that hell. And so for that reason, I and Elizabeth both felt we could cope with this. But, you know, for everyone, their, their sort of limits are in different places. I mean, I couldn't, I don't think I could translate Svetlana Alexievich myself, because the, 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 the grimness there is, just, to me, is just so unrelenting. And it's not, I mean, Gr Grossman, there are, well, 
probably not in the chapter about the terror famine, but certainly in this book there are flashes of humour everywhere. And there are moments of love everywhere. There are moments of love even, you know, in the, in the gas chamber scene in, in Life and Fate. Um, I don't get the sense that, um, I mean, Grossman's life led him to all these terrible places. But, you know, he didn't, he didn't choose to have a mother who was going to get massacred at Vyadichev. And um, what is striking about the choices he does make is... Um, Actually, there are again and again, there are slightly similar. There's a, both the, the story called The Old Teacher, which is um, about a, one of the kind of small-scale massacres in the early days of the Shoah in um, the Soviet Union and the gas chamber. You know, Grossman is... Um, there are always these moments of um, either parental love or some kind of, some kind, some kind of variant unparental love. So in the old, in the old teacher, um, it's this lonely old man who's being taken along to be shot and he's, you know, he's agonizingly lonely at this terrible moment. He's not got any family. And then um, this little girl he knows suddenly comes up and starts treating him as if she were his mother. You know, she puts her hands over his eyes and says, you know, don't, don't look there, it's so terrible. So she's, you know, she's, he's suddenly getting this, this love being shown to him in a totally unexpected person and, and, and way. So um, that's, that's all I can say. That seems a very good place to end. So it just leaves me to thank Robert very much for this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.